Hi, all. This is uh, Roger Horowitz, the, uh, the director of the Hagley Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society. Uh, I'm here with another episode of our Hagley History Hangout podcast series, where we interview people who have done research at Hagley and produced very interesting work in the course of the, their activities. Uh, today, we are doing a book interview uh, with Alex Taylor. Uh, he is Associate Professor of Art and Architecture Department at Pittsburgh University of Pittsburgh. Uh, his field is modern art and visual culture, uh, and he's generally a historian and, and scholar of modern American art and visual culture, uh, thinking about its location in circles uh, and cycles of capitalism and consumption. Uh, before uh, embarking on the current project that we're going to talk about, he was active in Australia, uh, looking at museums and galleries there, and he still maintains an active role, curatorial role, uh, with, the with the graduate students and faculty at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, the book we're talking about, his most recent book, it's his second, uh, is called Forms of Persuasion, Art and Corporate Image in the 1960s, published by University of California Press uh, in 2022, which is described as the first story of corporate patronage uh, in the modern uh, American uh, landscape. Uh, so Alex, thank you for taking time to talk with me on this program. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be chatting, and um, it's lovely to return to one of the places that this research uh, began. Well, thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute there. But first, um, tell me why you wrote this book. I mean, what questions, what reasons were behind this particular uh, production uh, of many years of work? Yeah, many years of work, way too many years of work. Um, this is my uh, dissertation book. Um, and um, But before I um, went to grad school, I wrote a book in my 20s, um, and that was a book about artist studios in Australian art. Um, and the, the last chapter of that, um, I mean, fundamentally, that book is, is kind of about the professionalization of the identity of the artist in Australia in the late 19th and early 20th century. And so I was really interested in the ways in which artists were looking to business to kind of cultivate new forms of uh, self-representation, self-fashion. Um, so when I completed that book, I it was clear to me that, um, and the last chapter of that book was called Artist Among the Bankers. So you can get an idea of kind of oh. what I was thinking about there. The, when I completed that book, I, it, be, it became clear to me that I really wanted to think more deeply about art and capitalism in the 20th century. And it's really for that reason that I turned to uh, American art. Um, and started um, in my dissertation re research thinking about post-war American art. Um, so that's the kind of origin story for the, for the thinking of it. Um, the other thing is that in my 20s, while I was writing that first um, book, I was working full-time in a marketing department in a museum, um, mm -hmm. and I loved that work. Um, it kind of got old after a while, but yeah. I was really proud of my work as a professional marketer and communicator. And um, I, in some ways, I think the genesis of this book was also mm -hmm. about wanting to take that work seriously and understand some of the histories that, um, you know, my own um, early professional practice was um, a part of. Um, yeah, so th those would be the kind of two things that I think right. cons conspired to make this project. Well, it's always good to hear how 
project two or maybe two and a half comes out of in many ways project number one and questions that are left uh, at the end of that, that experience, including that's the case. So uh, give us the big picture. Um, what did you find about what you describe really as a, as a convergence, a cohabitation of modern art and corporate strategy? Uh, it really 50s, 60s, 70s, I'd say, is the heart of your book. How does this complicated dance uh, work itself out? What's behind it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's interesting that you point out that the period, you know, the, the, the decade that's on the cover of the book is the 1960s. But in a lot of ways, really, the project is, is, is um, bracketed from the late 50s to the early 70s. And, um, you know, that kind of, expansion of understanding the 60s was something important to me. Um, the, the, the kind of shift I really wanted to trace in the project was that um, uh, kind of transformation of the ways that artists and business were working together um, from an earlier period where obviously artists as uh, commercial illustrators of various kinds were often working with business or um, with uh, commercial clients. Um, and as that business, you know, began to kind of dry up with the rise of television advertising, um, I wanted to sort of understand the ways in which artists um, engaged with corporate enterprise in the intervening years, really before the early 70s, when the model that fundamentally we um, retain today, um, whereby artists' engagement with big business is usually brokered through the institution of the museum in some kind of sponsorship-like arrangement. I wanted to understand how we got from point A to point B and sort of what happened in, in the interim period. And, you know, what that meant I had to do was um, dig into case studies um, of different kinds in different industries uh, to understand the ways in which um, artists, galleries, uh, corporate executives, uh, advertising agencies, PR firms, and the rest um, were working together to kind of find these areas of mutual interest that, um, that artworks could kind of themselves become a part of. Um, and I mean, what this meant I had to do was become a kind of um, uh, probably pretty half-baked business historian <laughs> and really dive into the kind of uh, histories of the particular enterprises that I was looking at. You know, I didn't get to those businesses through their business principally. I got to them because for one reason or another, they had turned to art mm -hmm. and I wanted to understand why. And one of the things that you uh, bring out throughout the book is some very deep uh, collaboration between artists and businesses, uh, famous artists, in which the artists are eager for this kind of collaboration. Uh, and one thing you point out is at a time where artists often will say, well, no, we actually we weren't tied to the machine of, of capitalism and all that. They're actually so there's a lot of evidence in there. And it seems like you're the first person to really kind of put that evidence on the page and, and put that together. So one question I have is why do you think this is something that, that you had to research in the first place, since many of these occasions are right there 
that for you to find out about, and yet they are overlooked by other narratives that you just, that you comment on in the course of writing your book. Yeah, I mean that's very kind of you to say. I I don't think I'm the first to um, uh, describe some of these enterprises, but perhaps in terms of the framework of seeing them as a kind of field of endeavor that was in some ways defining of 1960s art, um, at least in in my view, um, that I think is a slightly different take. Um, and in some ways, lots of these works are incredibly famous precisely because business and its associated communications and persuasions industries put such weight behind um, using these projects, these commissions, these uh, collections to uh, communicate um, various kinds of corporate imperatives um, to talk to their consumers or to, to you know, engage with their personnel or whatever. Um, part of the reason a lot of the artworks I deal with are kind of, you know, big name famous things by famous um, mainly white male artists um, is the very fact that, you know, like the enterprises behind them had the kind of um, uh, power to uh, secure that position for them in the history of art. And, and what I'm really interested in is the ways in which the history of art have has um, uh, accepted the stature of those works without really interrogating much what might have been behind their high profile. And, you know, often this meant kind of reading between the lines of a lot of the um, contemporary, especially press coverage of these works, to try to weasel out mm. what imperatives exactly they were um, securing uh, for the companies that had uh, that had bankrolled them. Well, let's get into some examples. I mean, you just mentioned a few artists and famous artworks and all that. From the many that you talk about, pick some out here to tell us about how you how it worked itself through particular artists. Okay. Well, I mean, maybe maybe the order of the book is as good as any to 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 talk about. Um, you know, the first couple of chapters of the book really focus on Andy Warhol. And um, uh, a year or two into the project, as I would like give my elevator pitch as a doctoral student of what this, what this book was about, what the dissertation was about, I, um, I got so sick to death of people, you know, like I would explain it in abstract terms. It's about art patronage in the 1960s, corporate, yada, yada, yada. And then I would get so tired of people going, oh, so you work on Warhol. And I'd be like, no, 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 I don't work on Warhol. The project is infinitely more complicated and interesting than Warhol. That's way too obvious. And then at a certain point, you know, after you hear this thing so many times, it's like, okay, this is the elephant in the room that I really need to think about Warhol and his, you know, both exemplary position in the idea of art as business, business art, et cetera. Um, and also his kind of exceptional position in the openness with which he pursues those interactions. And, you know, so from, from wanting to kind of like run away from um, Warhol's presence, he ended up being the, the, the first um, chapter and a half of the book, really. Um, and the, the kind of nugget that I pursued in relation to Warhol was the fact that um, his uh, famous series of Campbell's soup can paintings made in 1962 
were um, reprised in 1964, and the, um, uh, the difference between those works was really the first were uh, these unique hand-painted uh, paintings of, uh, of the Campbell's label. And in 64, he moves to screen printing them. And the, the trigger for making that second series um, was in fact a commission from the company itself um, as a gift for a retiring uh, president of the company. And, you know, this episode is like weirdly, I mean, it's it's not a secret. It's, it's, it's buried there in the catalogue raisonne and a couple of people mention it, but you know, it seems so fundamental to this series of pictures and our understanding of them. And really, it's the second series of soup cans that Warhol then reproduces many, many times and becomes, you know, the most widely circulating versions of these images. And so I wanted to just get to grips with what precisely was the nature of his uh, commercial arrangement with the company what did Campbell's want from Warhol? What did Warhol want from Campbell's? Mm. What, what turned out to be the case is a really kind of complicated, messy story in that despite commissioning this uh, work from him, a couple of years later, uh, Campbell's uh, lawyer finds themselves essentially uh, pursuing legal action against, um, mm. uh, against Warhol um, through a uh, publishing company of one of his one of his uh, multiples and so I was interested in this kind of contradiction of a of a consumer brand that was like enticed by the attention that pop art was giving them but also kind of like terrified about the lack of the loss of control mm. that um you know allowing Andy Warhol to like be in control of the circulation of your brand as you can imagine is not is not exactly what a big business wants to uh wants to uh contemplate well how does this work itself I mean is, does Campbell's soup you know really sort of you know ditch him in the end or do they you know sort of eventually figure out how to live with the with the Andy Warhol who they can't control who puts their brand all over the place I think they probably realized that um, it's out of their control, that in some ways the, you know, the fate of their brand at the hands of this artist's intervention is something bigger than Campbell's soup. You know, they think they're a very big company, but, you know, it turns out Warhol has the, <laughs> probably has the last laugh there in terms of cultural stature and um, probably economic impact. Um, so I, you know, I think they, um, so that's, that's the sort of macro historical sense. I think, you know, in the, by the late sixties, the other intervening factor is that in 65, 66 pop art was hot. It was, you know, like the, the big thing. And, and as the kind of, you know, as a kind of, uh, mass taste, phenomenon, mm. business was interested in that and the ways in which it could engage with um, this popular cultural trend, um, you know, really that ripples that extend out from art itself into a much wider range of like right. fashion and television and Batman and, you know, the whole, all of the phenomenon associated with pop. Um, that moment is over. And in some ways, you know, the, the the fading fortunes of pop itself in the later, you know, in the mid to late 60s kind of solves the problem a little bit for, 
for Campbell's. But what is interesting is the, the moment in my research when I reached out to the um, former PR director at the company to you know, ask a kind of simple question about the nature of their engagement, um, he was determined to discourage me from pursuing this line of questioning. Um, and it turned out, you know, if you go through the archive for long enough, um, you find other examples of the very same PR director trying to discourage researchers in the past from um, asking these questions about the interactions between Warhol and the company. So, um, you know, they, they were pretty keen to distance themselves. Um, and, um, you know, it turns out they kind of got their way. Um, it's not something that, given all of the ink spilt on uh, the soup campaignings, it's kind of curious that um, it hasn't been a subject more uh, addressed in more detail. Especially since Warhol incites research and commentary that, that's, that, that's been there. Well, you also wrote about Philip Morris and their appropriation of, of, of par part. Uh, and with that, you think a lot about packaging and how that. So tell us about that part of your, your book. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the kind of historical facts of Philip Morris's engagement with pop is that um, at the very moment that the um, Surgeon General's report in early 64, I think it is, um, makes it clear that um, uh, tobacco companies are going to have to uh, grapple with new and increased regulation. Um, Philip Morris hires a PR firm, Ruder and Finn, um, to uh, come up with new PR strategies um, that can create positive images for, for uh, cigarettes um, uh, in, you know, in the background of this much messier um, territory when, you know, honestly, a whole lot fewer people are smoking all of a sudden as a result of this report and, um, and in which the tobacco business is terrified that, you know, the um, enormous energy that they have put into building brands and creating these incredible advertising campaigns to peddle their um, poisonous product, um, that, that, that that business model, you know, they were so reliant on mass marketing that that was all going to be taken away from them. And so they're, they're looking for new really media spaces to play in. And one of those unregulated media spaces that they find, I argue, is uh, works of art. Uh, and so they commission a series of pop prints through their PR agency um, in which Warhol and Rosenquist and Jim Dine and Mel Ramos and all the big names of uh, American and a couple of British pop artists participate. And so I wanted to understand, you know, how the, to what extent the artists understood they, what they were a part of um, and uh, how, how the works of art they made might have been grappling with some of the kind of thorny implications in that history um, that um, their participation involved. Um, and so, you know, alongside the actual mechanics of the project, I used this chapter to think a bit about package design and the ways in which really consumer goods companies like Philip Morris um, indeed, like Campbell's Soup, thought so incredibly carefully about the design of their packages. They were like little works of art to those companies and um, they invested in them, um, you know, 
exorbitant amounts of like design and research um, uh, work. Uh, and so again, taking seriously that kind of creative practice inside the corporation and thinking about what that means for mm. their attitude towards works of art, uh, to take seriously the fact that they were looking carefully at this work, these works of art, that um, companies and their ad agencies were attuned to the most nuanced distinctions mm. between this image and that image. That was the that was essential to their business. Um, and so putting those two worlds together, the world of uh, making works of art and the, the world of like designing these packages that were meant to kind of seize the eye of the consumer in, uh, you know, from the kind of um, morass of packages in um, the supermarket uh, to get someone to pick it off the shelf. Um, the similarities between the kinds of visual and formal techniques that 60s packaging and 60s art involve, the kind of formalist aesthetics that both of them had, yes. um, that really interested me a great deal. And, and in fact, it kind of, in some ways, I sort of jammed it into the Philip Morris chapter, but um, it's a question that hovers over a lot of the consumer products and indeed the logo designs yeah. that come out throughout, um, throughout the project. You know, in a later chapter, I think a bit about the um, abstract logo of Chase Manhattan Bank, um, you know, reputedly the first abstract logo in existence, but I, this has been written, I'm not sure it's actually true. Um, but again, I think this is sort of interest in businesses in like what abstract form could do, how it could kind of impress itself on the memory of one's customers, um, you know, like how it kind of, what the sort of optical effects of it were in the in the vision of a um, of a beholder, these are exactly the kind of issues that um, artists are thinking about in in the same period as well. Well, you say this in a wonderful way. More generally, this is on page uh, two thirty five. You say um, that uh, what could be more conceptual than a brand? In other words, you know, conceptual art. A brand is that, or more blandly abstract and yet densely symbolic than the modern logo where what you're suggesting is, is not just a, a convergence in interest. Okay, artists want to get paid, firms want publicity, that's pretty easy, but more that there's a sensibility about the promotional elements that firms are engaging in that has some synergy with the artistic practice. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, and, and I think, you know, those little lines that you read, um, are really a kind of plea from me to, to a reader who may regard modern art as great and important and consumer packaging as something otherwise, um, to really uh, take both as seriously as each other and to think that we might, that one was both learning from each other in the period and that historically, they can help us interpret, you know, one form can help us interpret each other. It, you know, my, my really um, profound belief in the uh, centrality of commercial culture to the ways in which um, the modern world has understood itself 
um, is, I hope, infused through the book. It's not, you know, a, the, a, a plea for that is not the kind of goal of the book, but I hope that it comes through that, you know, I, I, I wanted to take um, the work of uh, ad execs and spin doctors with mm. the same degree of seriousness and respect for the kind of imaginative capacities of that work as I uh, do for works of art. And, you know, in doing so, I think it's possible, and occasionally I've heard from folks that, 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 that art historians assume that I'm actually seeking to diminish the significance of the works of art in some way, which is not at all my intention. And at some point in the book, I actually explicitly, I figured that I had to say this. To me, it seemed unnecessary to say, um, but I think it's striking that, you know, there is a, a brand of art history which, you know, can't get its head around the possibility that the products of the commercial world are culturally significant. Well, let's talk about steel for a bit. I think you do a lot with steel where you talk about the actual artwork and what the objective was there. Uh, and this, of course, you mentioned before we turned on the recorder that you did a lot of work in Hagley's steel collections and that a small amount of which ends up in your footnotes, but more generally, I think you read, read about that. So this convergence you're talking about, uh, tell, tell us how it happens in the world of steel production, steel companies. Yeah, well, as you say, you know, one of my kind of key sources for this was the American Iron and Steel Institute records that are at Hagley. And, you know, this kind of um, uh, essentially lobby group, um, uh, its papers really allowed me to kind of get to grips with the big, you know, transnational issues that American steel was dealing with uh, in the 1960s and to kind of understand the ways in which works of art intersected with that history. And so um, the final three chapters of the book deal with three different steel companies, um, Ital Cedar in Italy, uh, US Steel, uh, and Kaiser Steel in uh, California. And across those chapters, you know, for me, the first thing to say is that it was really important um, to have that international example here because it's really the globalization of the steel business that hovers over that whole chapter. In some ways, hovers over many of the chapters of the book um, uh, in that American steel had lost its competitive edge in the post-war years. And, you know, in some ways had, rather than investing in the kind of process improvements and the new technologies that international steel companies like Ital Cedar um, and the Japanese steel industry had uh, instead kind of redirected a lot of their attention into marketing and um, public relations efforts in order to kind of bolster their reputation, their standing, um, their uh, relationships in Washington. Um, uh, rather than actually kind of like fix the structural issues in the American steel business. And obviously, you know, these are, now that I live in Pittsburgh, these are, these are histories that are, surround me all the time. Right, right. Um, so I, you know, part of that kind of, you know, just as Big Tobacco was, um, you know, deploying works of art as one of a really diverse range of kind of PR tactics, so too was Big Steel and, you know, the, the central chapter in that section is about 
um, US Steel's use of the material Core 10. Uh, Core 10 has kind of fallen into generic usage. It's a kind of um, uh, weathering steel that um, uh, once it's out in the elements for a bit, uh, develops a layer of rust. Um, but uh, it's a brand name. It's a kind of proprietary uh, term owned by US Steel. And really the kind of first high profile usage of this material was the fabrication of the Chicago Picasso, uh, Pablo Picasso's um, large monumental sculpture in Chicago. And um, really the reason why that work was made from Corten rather than any number of other materials was a very canny and um, expansive effort on behalf of US Steel uh, PR folks to use this material um, to demonstrate the kind of innovations of the industry, its development of new and exciting materials, uh, you know, as a way to distract, as I say, from these, you know, bigger, more structural problems. And what's super interesting about this, I think, is that actually Corten had been around for decades. Um, it had been used for rail railroad cars. Um, it wasn't a new material at all, but they were, you know, through the power of um, a truckload of press releases, many of them sent by the American Iron and Steel mm. Institute, um, they kind of secured for this material uh, a, a kind of ironically, given that rust was what it looked like. It seems mm. it was kind of weird choice of material to like say that steel was here to stay, you know, something that literally shows rust as its dominant vis visual characteristic. Um, but through Picasso and eventually um, by selling the material to architects, they gain something more than just selling a bunch of Corten. They gain this kind of new burnished image for Big Steel for the company. Uh, and I was interested in the ways in which um, this material, you know, artists really kind of get um, uh, entangled in the company's use of this material to uh, demonstrate um, its innovations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by virtue of that material being used for modern sculptures meant to be abstract and therefore, you know, fundamentally about their form and materiality, that this was a kind of perfect vehicle for US Steel to ensure that it was their material that was front and center. And, you know, sculptors and art critics that kind of echoed the glories of this supposedly new material really were kind of um, part of that promotional machinery, whether they knew it or not. Well, what I find intriguing is the way you're, you, this section shifts the angle of your investigation from the first section. In the first section, you've got, you know, the Campbell suit camp. You've got the Marlboro package. And so these are company branded works of art products there. Um, here, the steel is the background. You know, this, you know, this is not the US steel logo. This is not the US steel products. It's a frame by which they are projecting the art, the art onto there. Um, so, I, so I think what this does is show different ways in which artists can be drawn. And it's not so simple as simply commissioning a work of art. It can be generating a kind of a product where they control it, but the actual materials are the ones that the companies are interested in promoting. Yeah, and this works at both a, a kind of micro level and a macro level, like, you know, 
in, a, in the most straightforward sense, US Steel, through one of its PR companies, had some relationships that it uh, deployed to get artists and art students and um, through donations to university art departments, was actually like giving the material away. Um, you know, this is not something that a company would be doing, um, you know, without having thought through exactly what they were seeking to achieve by giving away Core 10. So that's the kind of like, I mean, that's a fairly straightforward promotional use, but there's this, you know, much bigger sense, I think, that the material itself, um, you know, by, by encouraging its use, um, and, um, you know, from one artist being influenced by the taste of another artist, there's this kind of like multiplication effect mm. where um, those promotional efforts get magnified many times over and in the process become more persuasively neutral. They don't look like advertisements, um, but, you know, the presence of large Corten sculptures in cities across America and around the world um, does, I think, amplify some messages about steel um, that were very useful for the steel industry, especially as it was trying to fend off competition from aluminum and from various kinds of synthetics. Um, the idea that, uh, that their material could be used for these quote-unquote timeless masterpieces of art that would be, you know, in the centres of uh, major capital cities across the world, that has value and that has meaning. And, you know, the idea that Big Steel went straight to Pablo Picasso to kind of secure that is, I think, evidence, you know, of just how serious they were about securing those, um, uh, those promotional ripples out of the, out of the endeavor. It's, Maybe it's not similar, but it seems of the same species as a product placement in in uh, movies, where you know some beautiful, gorgeous actor or actress uh, drinks a coke after rescuing the world from catastrophe, and so the coke then benefits from the kind of uh, reflected image of the actor. Here, Picasso presence, which of course by the 1960s is, is incredible. This is probably the most famous well-known artist you know, in the world. Uh, he uses the steel. And so they, they, they're basking in the glory of his artistic creation, even though they actually were sort of were behind that whole process taking place. Yeah. And I think product placement is a really relevant comparison. And, you know, the, the, when I was finishing up that, the, the book, that um, terrific uh, documentary, the name of which I'm, is going to escape me. I think it's Bathtubs Over Broadway. Um, yes, but yes. That's, a, that's about these, uh, you know, the phenomenon of the promotional musical often right. performed at sales conferences. And, you know, of course, these were written by serious big name Broadway um, uh, composers and lyricists. And, you know, there's these kind of continuities, I think, between the, the, those commercially oriented uh, practices um, in, in music, in TV, in theatre, you know, in all kinds of fields of cultural endeavour and the kinds of, um, you know, high art avant-garde practices that 
I narrow my focus to in this book, it's not because I'm not interested in that other stuff. I actually am incredibly interested in that other stuff. And I think, you know, maybe for a future book, it's some of that other more consumer facing stuff that I will dig into. Um, but for me, you know, to really kind of hone in on the supposedly most quote unquote pure and autonomous works of uh, serious avant-garde modernism and to show their entanglements in this field of commercial endeavor. Um, you know, that is why a, a comparison like product placement is absolutely relevant um, to the kind of story that I'm trying to tell. I mean, also the intermixing of the, of the creative uh, person, as you were saying before with activity, I mean, I mean, it's been written about the, the way that industrial designers were all artists that came out of that world. We have a person here looking at John Vassos, who became a, a designer of RCA buttons for electrical things, but who in the 20s is a avant-garde artist. And obviously he discovers that making things like subway spins are better in terms of money. So, so there's also, I think, a personnel story that's going on here where, where people move back and forth in between these fields. Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, I am fascinated by those personnel um, linkages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the challenges actually is that a lot of folks kind of hide and disavow some of those prior careers before they, you know, become artists or whatever. But, you know, there's a couple peppered in the book. Um, in fact, one is Beverly Pepper, very interesting abstract sculpt sculptor who starts her career as like, you know, an incredibly powerful, influential um, ad exec in the 50s, hmm. um, really high profile advertising executive um, under a different name. Hmm. Uh, I think her a married name, I can't remember in which direction. Um, but, you know, trying to think about what it means for a former ad exec to become an abstract sculptor, or for instance, you know, the art critic Harold Rosenberg, at the same time as he's writing his most famous books of art criticism, you know, terming, you know, coining phrases like the American action painters, really, you know, central central art critic in this period, at the same time he's working for the Advertising Council, doing kind of, you know, various sorts of uh, spin doctoring um, for that organisation. And to think about the ways in which these worlds converged, in, invariably part of my interest in that is my own professional history mm. in which I was moving between, um, you know, a marketing practice and, and, and the writing of art history and seeing connections that I, you know, in some sort of stubborn way refused to be embarrassed about. Mm. That's great. Well, um, let's start closing this up here. Um, you describe this as a period that it doesn't end, it sort of evolves into something else. What happens at this moment, this kind of, where there's really this really strong synergy between firms and artists around different products and objectives? Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of the narrative of the book, um, I <laughs> really emphasize the fact that in the late 60s and early 70s, there's a series of fairly high profile and kind of disastrous interactions between artists and big business that um, at some level, at least as I frame it in the book, um, serve to discourage these kind of connections. I also think, however, there's a kind of uh, socio-political shift resulting from the new left in the mid to late 60s that 
really uh, encourages artists to see corporations as the enemy in a way that, you know, in the kind of optimism of the very late 50s and the early 60s, there was, I think, a really genuine enthusiasm about um, playing ball with big business. Um, and in fact, big business seemed like a much more appealing patron to many of those artists than, uh, than government um, agencies, um, which, you know, in the memory of kind of WPA um, era restrictions, you know, there was a, a fair, fair amount of anxiety around that sort of work. So, you know, that's one shift that happens in the in the late 60s. And um, uh, so that that's kind of one area. And as I alluded to earlier, you know, the rise of sponsorship becomes another kind of um, uh, triggering shift. Uh, I think in some ways that comes from in large, in large part from museums, looking at these businesses playing in the sandpit with artists and thinking, hey, we can have a slice of this action um, and developing ways in which, you know, the corporate logo placement associated with an exhibition can kind of save businesses all the hassle of working with Andy Warhol or, mm -hmm. you know, Richard Serra or whoever. Um, and so the, the kind of rise of the uh, sponsored exhibition is, um, as I see it, um, represents a kind of tapering off of this energy towards uh, direct collaborations between artists and business that provides the sort of central focus for the book. Hmm. So in a way, the museums insert themselves as intermediaries in this process hmm. and cushion these these different communities from each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is a really essential point is that um, in some ways the involvement of museums allow artists or give artists the permission to imagine that this world of like big business and brands and stuff, that they, that they no longer have to deal with that, that that's something other than what, um, what artists do. And you know, there have been various efforts over the years to, you know, to um, forge collaborations between artists and businesses. And that's something that, you know, happened all through the late 20th century and continues to today. But I think the kind of, you know, the, the, the real investment in that as an idea in the 60s has to some extent vanished. And the, the, the structure that has um, that remains in its place is, is, is uh, museum sponsorship. Great, very tight ending. So all of you listening, uh, this is Forms of Persuasion, a book by Alex Taylor. Uh, go check, check it out. Uh, and uh, great talking to you, Alex. Uh, really, really great book and really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for reading it. Um, great to chat. Um, yeah, been, been fun, thanks. <laughs>